what I'm going to do is talk uh, about uh, the history of Section 1983 local government liability in the Supreme Court, including, of course, Connick versus Thompson. And then I'm going to situate Connick more generally in Section 1983 jurisprudence. And in the course of doing that, I'm going to emphasize the importance to the court in the last several decades, especially, of federalism and its impact on the scope of Section 1983. There are two possible titles uh, to this. The fancier title is Section 1983 and Local Government uh, Liability for Failure to Train Through a Federalism Lens. That's a law review title. The other uh, is uh, preferable. The Long and Winding Road, I like the Beatles, from Monroe to Connick v. Thompson. Now, the Supreme Court has been interested for the last few decades, especially uh, in federalism, consider the Supreme Court's decisions in Lopez and Morrison, uh, and in New York versus United States, and in Prince, and in the city of Bernie. And I think there's a comparable interest that the Supreme Court has in federalism in the Section 1983 setting. Federalism, broadly defined, has affected not only Section 1983 local government failure to train liability, but the scope of constitutional rights and the extent of the absolute qualified immunity of state and local government officials as well. Now, this is not a primer on federalism. This is not a basic course on constitutional law, obviously. But I think it may be important very briefly to remind ourselves about uh, several important points with respect to federalism as contemplated by the framers. It was intended not only to preserve state powers, but like separation of powers to protect citizens from the possible tyranny of the federal government. Federalism is largely structural in nature, but it has with it uh, other important values, including efficiency, promoting individual choice, encouraging experimentation, and promoting democracy. Now, to a considerable extent, as we all know, the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments changed this uh, by recognizing that states could pose dangers to its citizens, uh, to their citizens, and that it was the federal government that should protect them. In fact, one of the fights about federalism to this day is the extent to which the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, really did change federalism. So let's do a little something with Section 1983 by way of getting us into the cases and ultimately getting into Connick uh, v. Thompson, our favorite case for the day. Section 1983 was enacted in 1871 by the 42nd Congress and obviously intended to enforce the 14th Amendment. It was largely dormant until, section, until 1961 with Monroe v. Pay. It was dormant until that time because Incorporation of the Bill of Rights really began in earnest in the 1960s, and the state action doctrine was being developed in fits and starts to encompass more and more previously thought to be not private conduct, including joint conduct. Monroe v. Pate, handed down, as I say, in 1961, changed the Section 1983 landscape. It is no exaggeration to say it resurrected Section 1983. When it interpreted Section 1983, as creating a 14th Amendment damages action, you've heard this characterized as a constitutional tort, against Chicago police officers for allegedly violating the plaintiff's 4th and 14th Amendment rights. In so doing, the court importantly ruled, said three different important things. 
first color of law, the 14, the, the uh, section 1983 statutory language, color of law is as broad as state action. Second, a plaintiff need not first exhaust judicial remedies in state court before filing a section 1983 claim in federal court. And third, section 1983 should be interpreted against the background of tort liability that makes a person responsible for the natural consequences of his or her conduct. So far, so good. But two other aspects of Monroe v. Pate are important for present purposes. First, Justice Frankfurter's incredibly lengthy dissent argued uh, that color of law was narrower in scope than state action, which means that Section 1983 did not go as far as the 14th Amendment did. This dissent was grounded on a view of federalism that insisted that the framers' concept of federalism was not changed much, if at all, by the Civil War and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. This dissent turns out to have anticipated, in my view, future developments in the court, including that City of Bernie case that imposed rather severe limitations on Congress's Section 5 power under the 14th Amendment. That's the first point for present purposes. Second, the court held unanimously, and this was prompted in large measure by a lengthy memo, there is that word lengthy again in connection with uh, Justice Frankfurt, the former law professor from Harvard. Justice Frankfurt circulated in advance of decision a lengthy memo on Section 1983's legislative history to his colleagues. I know because I've been to the Library of Congress and have seen this thick memo among the justices' papers that local governments, according to Justice Frankfurt, were not suable persons. And that's what the court held unanimously. And I was wondering why the court went this way unanimously, uh, that local governments at that point in Monroe were not suitable defendants. And I was thinking, as I was teaching my con law course and covering Brown against the Board of Education, that Brown was decided six years, excuse me, that Monroe was decided six years after Brown too which started the court down the road of equitable federal judicial supervision of and intervention in school district decision-making, sometimes on a day-to-day -day basis. Brown, too, with all deliberate speed, you will remember. So Brown marked the beginning of institutional re litigation, institutional reform litigation in the Supreme Court, and perhaps, just perhaps, the court did not want at this delicate time in our nation's history to confront the specter of Section 1983 damages actions brought against school districts, maybe even states, that had engaged in school segregation. It was only in 1978 that the court got around the Monell, case you've heard referred to several times already, <coughs> to overruling the local government liability holding in Monroe. It revisited an opinion by Justice Brennan, the legislative history of Section 1983, and said, Mea culpa, we got it wrong in 1961. In his opinion for the court, Justice Brennan pointed out that local governments were ruled that local governments of all kinds, special or general purpose, or suable persons under Section 1983, and could be liable in damage where the constitutional violation was committed by a local government official or employee, magic words now, pursuant to an official policy or custom. The court emphasized congressional intent to subject local governments to damages liability under Section 1983. Now, as you've also heard, at the same time the court in Monell 
rejected respondeat superior liability, vicarious liability, altogether because of section uh, 1983, subjects or causes to be subjected language. And this insistence on avoiding respondeat superior liability was later to emerge with a vengeance in the court's failure to train and supervise decisions in City of Canton versus Harris, which we'll talk about, Bryan County versus Brown, which we'll also talk about, uh, the two precursors, the Connick versus Thompson, handed down as we know in 2011. Monell, the 78 decision, overruling that aspect of Monroe we talked about, expressed very little concern with federalism and open deterrence because the court correctly assumed that Congress was well within its power under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to impose damages liability on local governments, in contrast, as we were to find out later, to states. States were held not to be suable persons under Section 1983. The court soon thereafter went beyond Monell and held in Owen versus City of Independence in 1980 that local governments were not protected by qualified immunity, even though they were absolutely immune from punitive damages liability. So the suggestion that was floated a little bit ago about the Supreme Court ultimately holding that local governments could not be, um, might be absolutely immune as entities, no, it's not going there. That's the Owen case that is not going to be overruled. There have been other ways of getting at that result, but doctrinally, that's not going to happen. Note also that by this time, uh, it, when Monell came down, the court and the country were, for the most part, I suppose, past the Southern resistance to Brown. The jury segregation in the public schools and else in the public schools and elsewhere was technically, we hope, over. De facto segregation and resegregation were of greater concern. So there was little chance that there would be a flood of Section 1983 damages actions against school districts that had previously engaged in school segregation. It's important to recall, uh, and here I'm continuing this little primer on Section 1983 for everybody's benefit, I hope. It's important to recall that Monell which clearly involved an official policy set out by the local government entity itself, also stated that the official policy could be made by, quote, lawmakers or by those whose edicts or acts may be fairly said to represent official policy, end quote. <coughs> Justice Brennan tossed that language in for future use. And, in fact, it worked, because Monell thus created the famous, or depending on your perspective, perhaps infamous, policymaker category under which a local government could be held liable for the unconstitutional conduct of a high-ranking government official considered under state and local law to be a policymaker. I've always liked to think of this in terms of attribution. The unconstitutional conduct of a policymaker, of a certain high-ranking government official, may in many circumstances, in some circumstances, be attributed to the local government as an entity for purposes of liability. Subsequently, uh, or significantly I should say, subsequent policymaker decisions of the court made clear that even a single incident, notice, even a single incident, that is, a single unconstitutional act of a policymaker could be attributed to the relevant local government and rendered it liable, that's the Pembauer case, handed down in 1986. Single incident going to come back to haunt us uh, or some of us in Connick 
in council. As a lead-in to the City of Canton case, uh, please note that there was a prior decision in 1985 called City of Oklahoma City versus Tuttle that was the, really the first to address local government failure to train liability. And that ruled that an instruction to a jury that a city's failure to train liability could be based on a single incident was reversible error. I'll say that again. An instruction to a jury that a city's failure to train liability could be based on a single incident was reversible error. That's the Huddle decision in 1985. And the court there suggested that there ought to be a deliberate indifference standard or state of mind requirement as an effective way of avoiding single incident respondeat superior liability. Finally, in 1989, we're inching closer to the 21st century. You'll be glad to know. Finally, in 1989, in the city of Canton, uh, firmly established the principle, somewhat counterintuitive, I should say, that a local government's failure to train its police officers, its officers could constitute an actionable official policy or custom. You get that? A failure to train not doing something could constitute an actionable official policy or custom. Specifically, the city of Canton said that a, a local government's deliberately indifferent failure to adequately train its police officers with regard to the right of citizens with whom the police come in contact could constitute an actionable official policy or custom. It was thus the inadequate training that constituted the official policy or custom. Now, in the course of its opinion, the, uh, in the city of Canton, the court throughout was careful to emphasize in articulating his deliberate indifference standard and not choosing, let's say, a negligence standard that it was concerned with the specter of responding as superior liability in the guise of a single, in the guise of liability based on a single incident of police misconduct. And also, in the city of Canton, the court he insisted that there be a close causal connection. That's going to turn out to be important for reasons we'll see. A close causal connection between the identified deficiency in training and the plaintiff's constitutional violation. On the other hand, and there's always another hand, as we know, in a footnote, you know we all know about famous footnotes in Brown against Board of Education footnote 11, and perhaps more significant, Caroline Products footnote 4, well, I'm giving you footnote 10 in City of Canton case, which turned out to be significant over two decades later in Connick, the court observed in this footnote 10 that there could be rare situations in which the need for training was so obvious. For example, where a city knows that police officers will be required to arrest fleeing felons, and it supplies the police with firearms but it does not provide them with any training in the use of deadly force, whatever, that would constitute actionable deliberate indifference. Before we leave city of Canton and move on, it's worth mentioning that in his opinion for the court, Justice, Doug, Justice White uh, explicitly emphasized that important federalism interests were implicated in local government liability failure to train situations, including federal judicial second-guessing of local government training programs. And take a step back for a moment. Here we have got a federal statute, which is enforced for the most part by federal, by the federal judiciary, 
applicable to state and local governments. Talk about federalism interests and clashes. Section 1983 is almost a litmus test for your view of federalism. Now consider why Justice White was likely correct in pointing out that there were important federalism interests in these failure to train local government liability cases. Anybody who's litigated in this area knows what is at stake because what is on trial in failure to train cases is the local government's training program itself. A plaintiff must prove what adequate training is and why the training that was offered was inadequate. This requires federal courts to carefully evaluate every aspect of that training in order to decide whether the plaintiff's claim may go forward. And even though this inquiry, it's true, is made in connection with damages and not equitable relief, which is more intrusive, this still nevertheless remains intrusive because, and indeed it's typically more intrusive than is a Section 1983 damages action based on an official policy or custom of the local government itself or on the single act of a policymaker. Eight years after City of Canton, Bryan County versus Brown in 1997 addressed the Section 1983 damages action against the county based on an allegedly improper hiring decision by a county sheriff who was a policymaker for the county. That was admitted. That's the case that was referred to earlier. Inadequate screening was the specific claim. The deputy sheriff who had been hired by the county sheriff, and the uh, deputy sheriff was the county sheriff's grandnephew, had used excessive force against a woman and seriously injured her when he pulled her out of the car. So there's a Fourth Amendment excessive force claim pretty clearly against the deputy sheriff. What about a lawsuit against the county through its policymaker? The plaintiff claimed that had the county sheriff adequately screened the applicant for deputy sheriff, he would have found that assault and battery charges had once been leveled against that applicant, that deputy sheriff. Now notice the tension in Bryan County between the court's previously established principle in Pembauer that there could be situations in which a single decision by a policymaker could render a local government liable on the one hand, and on the other, the principle that there was no respondeat superior liability under Section 1983, the latter establishing a posture of extreme skepticism toward local government liability based on a single incident. Here is what is most important about Bryan County for present purposes. The court tightened up in Bryan County the deliberate indifference standard of city of Canton and declared, only where adequate scrutiny of an applicant's background would lead a reasonable policymaker to conclude that the magic words, plainly obvious consequence, plainly obvious consequence of a decision to hire the applicant would be the deprivation of a third person's friendly protected right. Can the officer's failure to adequately scrutinize the applicant's background constitute deliberate indifference? And in Bryan County itself, even adequate screening that would have discovered the assault and battery charge would not necessarily have avoided this particular Fourth Amendment violation, the use of excessive force. Let me put this another way. The particular constitutional violation was not the plainly obvious consequence of the allegedly inadequate screening, with the result 
that the county sheriff was not deliberately indifferent to it. So for you torts fans, <laughs> Bryan County made the proximate cause inquiry much more difficult for a plaintiff <coughs> to overcome by focusing on the particular constitutional violation that occurred and not constitutional violations in general. So after Bryan County, there is both a deliberate indifference requirement and a related and very tough proximate cause requirement for Section 1983 plaintiffs. And even though, as a technical matter, this requirement was announced in an inadequate screening hiring case, that's Bryan County, the circuits have tended to apply the plainly obvious consequence standard in failure to train cases generally. As a result, the court in Bryan County gave lower federal courts even greater judicial control over the failure to train liability issue than before. Federal courts could thereby more readily take failure to train cases from juries by applying the plainly obvious consequences standard. As an historical footnote, which was mentioned by one of our speakers earlier, Bryan County led the three dissenters, Breyer, Stevens, and Ginsburg, to argue, based upon Justice Stevens' position decades earlier, you'll remember, that local government liability law had become so complex, so arcane, that it was now time to re-examine Monell's holding that respondeat superior liability is not available under Section 1983. That's not going to happen. But uh, Justice Stevens may have been on to something several decades ago. This brings us finally, you'll be glad to know, to Connick versus Thompson. I want to set out the case in a little bit of detail with your indulgence, still staying within my uh, time constraints, and then I'm going to offer some observations about Connick, and uh, we'll go from there. Connick, as you know, was a five to four decision. An opinion by Justice Thomas, an interesting assignment by the Chief Justice. Was it Justice Thomas's time to get an assignment, or did the chief in part think that maybe we want something that's going to scuttle uh, this aspect of Section 1983 jurisprudence? Don't know. Pure speculation. The court effectively held that local government liability for failure to train may never, that's my reading of it, be based on a single incident, even in the face of an otherwise persuasive claim of deliberate indifference because the need for training is obvious. Instead, the plaintiff was also showing patterns of similar constitutional violations. Scalia, Justice Scalia, joined by Justice Alito, concurred, and Justice Ginsburg, dissented, joined by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, and in fact, Justice Ginsburg, I heard uh, read her uh, dissent uh, on Oye.org. If you don't know about that, all the oral arguments of the Supreme Court are there. A great teaching tool and learning tool. Let me reprise some of the facts, because different aspects of the case have been bandied about, but let's pull all this together as I see the facts from the opinion, not necessarily from examining the record. Uh, our 1983 plaintiff, Mr. Thompson, was convicted of murder and spent 14 years on death row, 18 years total, for a crime that he did not commit because prosecutors did not turn, turn over to his attorney a lab report in an earlier case in which he had previously been convicted of attempted aggravated armed robbery. This lab report indicated that the perpetrator of the attempted armed robbery had type B blood while the plaintiff had type O blood. Here's an interesting twist here which hasn't emerged enough 
Because of that conviction, the plaintiff did not testify in his own defense at his murder trial, where he was convicted. Many years later, this lab report that the prosecutors had failed to turn over was discovered, with the result that in 1999, the attempted armed robbery conviction was vacated, and in 2002, the murder conviction was overturned, and a subsequent murder trial in 2003, at which plaintiff finally was able to testify uh, in his own, on his own behalf, in his defense, resulted in a not guilty verdict, and he sued the prosecutor's office. This is local government liability now, not the prosecutor personally, uh, for damages under Section 193, making, in essence, a local government liability failure to train claim regarding proper training under Brady, a 1963 decision, as you all know, and its due process requirement imposed on prosecutors to turn over exculpatory evidence to criminal defendants. Jury awarded 10 million, upheld by the district court. Fifth Circuit affirmed, a panel did, vacated by the Fifth Circuit, which granted N-Bank review, equally divided court, meaning that, uh, that N-Bank, Fifth Circuit was equally divided. The district court decision was uh, affirmed. The Supreme Court granted cert to decide the following question presented, very shrewdly crafted. Does imposing theory to train liability on a district attorney's office for a single Brady violation contravene the rigorous culpability and causation standards of Canton and Bryan County, where there is no history of similar Brady violations? As noted, the court answered yes. Now. The oral argument in Connick, which I also listened to, involved the participation of all of the justices, except you know who. <laughs> it was a very hot court, but it signaled the outcome. During the defense argument, Justice Ginsburg pointed out, as did Justice Breyer later, that even though this was arguably just one incident, four prosecutors were involved. Justice Ginsburg also wondered, now this is Laura Heinemann, she also wondered why it was necessary to shoehorn this case into a single incident. It did not fit either into the single incident category or into the pattern of constitutional violations category. Justice Breyer wondered uh, what the jury instruction was that was objected to, eventually eliciting the response that the case was not about that, but it was really about the evidentiary basis for the jury's finding of deliberate indifference. Justice Kennedy, who was to be the swing vote in this 5-4 decision, you know we've got a Kennedy court, don't you? When Justice O'Connor was on the bench, it was an O'Connor court. Justice Kennedy is the swing vote in so many of these cases. It's therefore a Kennedy court, and you gear your arguments, your briefs, to him if you get uh, up there. Justice Kennedy pointed out that the district court had rejected the defense's pattern of constitutional violations instruction. Here's where it really gets interesting. During the plaintiff's, the attorney emphasized that this case was never about a single incident and that the plaintiff had never relied on a single incident theory. Justice Alito, Justices Alito and Roberts then hit plaintiff's counsel hard with a series of questions about precisely what kind of Brady training the district attorney should have provided. They repeatedly emphasized the complexity to them of the training issue in this case, they also tried to identify, to get the plaintiff's attorney to identify, the precise inadequacy of training that the plaintiff was challenging. 
council was founded, at least in part, that there was zero Brady training in the office. Justice Kennedy then commented without elaboration that he was concerned about causation, perhaps suggesting we won't ever really know, that he could find, he could not find the necessary causal link between the alleged inadequate training in Brady and the resulting Brady violation. The court in Connick never reached the causation issue. Here is a capsulated version. Even though there had apparently been no Brady training of prosecutors before 1985, before uh, when Thompson was convicted of aggravated armed robbery, the court rejected the plaintiff's argument that this was one of those rare cases, cases hypothesized in footnote 10 in City of Canton versus Harris. The court emphasized the stringency of the deliberate indifference requirement for local government liability for failure to train because it was concerned with avoiding respondents and liability. Here's where the court went on to distinguish prosecutors from police officers. Prosecutors, unlike police officers, are going through training in the use of firearms and deadly force to stop fleeing felons, the example in the city of Canton, were already trained in law school and had to pass a bar exam before they could practice. In addition, there were continuing legal education requirements imposed on all lawyers. Thus, quote, recurring constitutional violations are not the obvious consequence of failing to provide prosecutors with former, formal in-house training about how to obey the law, end quote. Moreover, it was undisputed in this case that prosecutors were familiar with the general Brady rule. In marked contrast to armed police officers who have no prior knowledge whatever about the constitutional use of deadly force before they go to get trained. So the absence of formal training in Brady, according to the court, was not dispositive. This was not like the city of Canada. Here's the court's conclusion, very operative language for the lawyers among us here who are practicing in this area. To prove deliberate indifference, Thompson needed to show, this is a quote now, needed to show that Connick was on notice that absent additional specified training, it was highly predictable that the prosecutors in his office would be confounded by those Brady gray areas and make incorrect Brady decisions as a result. So far, okay. In fact, here's where it gets a little intriguing. In fact, Thomas had to show that it was so predictable that failing to train prosecutors amounted to, get this now, conscious disregard for defendants' Brady rights, end quote. Conscious disregard is a state of mind that's ratcheted even higher than deliberate indifference. And the court uh, approved, four justices approved, that language as articulated by Justice Thomas. We don't have time really to get into uh, the concurring opinions uh, or the uh, dissenting opinions. Suffice it to say that according to the dissent, the evidence submitted to the jury indicated that the conceded, long-concealed prosecutorial transgressions were neither isolated nor atypical. There was a structural problem in the prosecuting district attorney's office, and that's what the jury based its verdict uh, on. And this was, therefore, a case, a city of Canton footnote 10 case, where the need for training is so very uh, obvious. Let me make some observations about uh, the Connick case. As I indicated earlier, the question is that whoever drafted the question presented 
was owed properly whatever fee he got for this, this alone. Because what you want to do is get the court's attention, obviously. The question presented was uh, for review was very well crafted to get the court's attention at the third stage because motivated in large measure by the federalism concerns I've mentioned earlier, the court has long been concerned about the misuse of a single constitutional violation. The court, at least this majority, probably wanted to use Honig as a way of scuttling, of getting rid of that footnote 10 possibility for good. And that was pretty much what it did in the Connick case. Now, Connick involved the training of prosecutors, but the court's reasoning suggests that plaintiffs in all failure to train cases will have to show a pattern of prior constitutional violations in order to demonstrate deliberate indifference. That's what I think the thrust of this is. With Connick, and this has been mentioned earlier, but now I'll repeat it in the context of this overall discussion, the court has extended protection from damages liability to all levels of prosecution. Clearly, the individual prosecutors in Connick who failed to discharge their Brady obligations are absolutely immune. Their conduct was advocated in nature. That's just the way it is. The reason you can somehow uh, find, tease out some sort of investigative conduct, but not apparently in this case. Moreover, and this is even more problematic to those of us who follow the area, Connick himself as supervisor was absolutely immune from a damages liability personally see Vandicap versus Goldstein, a 2009 decision, where a unanimous decision, I can't get, I don't understand that, a unanimous decision written by Justice Breyer, the court held that supervisory prosecutors charged with failing to train prosecutors in connection with the proper use of criminal trials of jailhouse informants are absolutely immune from damages liability in their individual capacities, even though this function is administrative in nature. I have time to get into the functional approach. This is an aberration, but it's the law now. And this reasoning in Vandy Camp is surely going to apply to any lawsuit against Connick or any other prosecutor in his individual capacity for damages in connection with failing to train uh, for Brady. Now, there was a hidden Brady causation issue. Uh, excuse me, there was a hidden Bryan County causation issue in Connick that wasn't addressed by the Supreme Court or by any of the other federal courts so far as I know. I don't know whether the defense raised it, maybe Justice Kennedy talking about causation was getting at it, but here is what I am uh, wondering about. Thompson sought damages for his wrongful conviction and imprisonment for murder. Right? So far as I can tell, the actionable failure to train and Brady violation occurred in connection with his prior conviction for attempted aggravated armed robbery. It was this failure to train and Brady violation that allegedly led to his attempted armed, aggravated armed robbery conviction that in turn, here's the key now, led to his not taking the stand and the resulting murder conviction and imprisonment. Here's my question. Was Thompson's not taking the stand and the resulting murder conviction and imprisonment really the Remember this language? The plainly obvious consequence of the failure to train prosecutors about the requirements of Brady in the prior attempt at our aggravated armed robbery case. There's clearly causation in fact. But I don't really see proximate cause. What I'm saying is this case could be resolved in the same way without even getting into this broad ruling on deliberate indifference. But that's not what the court uh, had in mind. 
Well, I'm out of time. I don't have time to situate this in Section 1982 jurisprudence in general. You'll have to take my word for it. <laughs>